How's everybody doing? Oh, all right. That's nice. It's good to hear. So today is Good Friday. So TGIF, right? Do you guys remember TGIF? Anybody old enough to remember TGIF? Yeah. They used to play like Boy Meets World and Family Matters, Step by Step. What were some other shows? You guys remember other shows? Hang Time? What? Never heard of it. It was on TGIF? Nah. Yeah, I don't think so. Was that a cartoon? It sounds like a cartoon. Huh. Okay. Yeah, never heard of it. All right. Well, good talk. <laughs> no, but today is Good Friday. And uh, so we're going to have, we're going to take a break from our series. Currently, we're in a series called Exemplary, where we're going through 1 Timothy 4.12 and just going through each of the parts where uh, Paul encourages Timothy to be an example to the believers. Uh, but we're going to take a break from that, obviously, because it's Good Friday. So I want to talk about what Good Friday is. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you guys want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, if you have your Bibles. Uh, and if you have a digital Bible, as always, uh, I'll be reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the HCSB. So if you want to turn to that, feel free. But Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be talking about Good Friday. How are we doing, Alan? Cool. All right. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us all out here. God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would show us what Good Friday is all about, what you did, what you changed. And I pray, God, that we would leave tonight with a greater understanding of what this day meant. Just open our hearts, open our eyes, and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 9. So we're going to read verses... 1 through, let's go to 5. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which there was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. So in the book of Exodus, in chapter 25, uh, that's where we get introduced to this tabernacle that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, this earthly sanctuary, uh, which was also known as the Tent of Meeting. And that's what it was called. And God, in Exodus chapter 25, God gave Moses a very detailed plans for how he wanted this Tent of Meeting to look. It was extremely detailed. If you read it in Exodus, uh, it's, it's almost 
mind-numbing how detailed God was with the instructions. And we're told later in this chapter, in, in chapter 9, that the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was, was built on earth as a copy of what it looks like in heaven. That's what we're told later in chapter 9. And that's why God gave Moses very detailed instructions. He wanted it to look exactly how it did in heaven. So they got a sneak peek into heaven, the children of Israel did. They got a sneak peek into heaven when they built this tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And so in, in the verses that we just read, there are certain things, certain articles in the tent of meeting that they represented something more than just what they were. And in the first room, so you got the tent, right? I was going to have an image of it, but got a little too busy. So you have this, this tent, right? And so you walk in, and in the first room, it's called the holy place. And so in this first room, the holy place, you had um, the lampstand, the bread of the presence. And the lampstand, it represented God's presence. It represented the word of God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So the lampstand was more than just a lampstand. It represented Christ, the word of God, who became flesh, just like it says in John 114. And then you had the, the, the presentation loaves. Those, these were six uh, unleavened loaves of bread that were on a table. And they were, uh, they were a, an offering to God. And so they were displayed in two rows of six on this table, on this golden table. And the only people who were allowed to eat this bread were the Levites. And the Levites were the tribe of Israel that was chosen to perform the duty as priests in the tent of meeting. Every other Israelite tribe, you know, you had, you know, Dan and Benjamin and Reuben. You had all these, you had these 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were the ones that were chosen uh, to perform the duties as priests. All the other tribes, they had a portion of land that they were given. When they went into the promised land, they were all given a piece of land. But the Levites, they were given God. Instead of giving them some land, God said, I'm going to give you myself. So you're not going to have an inheritance. Your inheritance is going to be me. And so these were the only people that were allowed to eat the bread. So the only, only those who belonged to God and to whom the Spirit of God rested upon, those were the only people who were allowed to eat this bread. And this bread represents Jesus. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one, comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. So similarly, only those who belong to God can eat the bread of life, who is Jesus, and never hunger again. So that's the holy place. And then you have the curtain. There was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And just before the curtain, there was this this little table, it was called the altar of incense. So you had the altar of incense, and then on the other side of the curtain, which was the Holy of Holies, that's where you uh, have the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had the jar of manna, you had Aaron's staff, and you had the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. 
And so the incense weren't, weren't just incense. They represented something. They represented the prayers of God's people. In Revelation 8, verses 3 through 4, it says that the angel, uh, an angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God. So we are to offer our prayers to God morning and night the same way that the priests were to burn incense at the altar of incense morning and night. That was one of the duties of the priests. They were to burn incense every morning and every night. But 1 Thessalonians 5.17 takes it even further. It says that we are to pray without ceasing. We're to pray without ceasing. And just like the incense smoke, when they would burn the incense, the fragrance and the smoke would fill the tent. And in the same way, our prayers, the, the smoke and the fragrance fills God's presence. It fills God's presence in heaven. So go, go boldly to God in prayer. Just think about that. Just remember that. The same way that when you burn incense, the smoke and the aroma fills whatever room you're in, your prayers to God, the smoke and the aroma of those prayers fills his presence. So go boldly to him. And then the Holy of Holies, that's where God dwelt. That's where God told the people that this is where I will dwell. That was his presence. That's where his presence was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, if uh, you guys are unfamiliar with it, it's just like, it was like this box that was overlaid with gold and it had two angels sitting on top of it and their wings were like, you know, they were facing each other but not and then the wings were coming out. Like, it looks, you guys can look up images of the Ark of the Covenant online. It's pretty cool. And then if, if you would imagine, like, it was just straight up gold. Like, I heard there's a movie about it, Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant. Is that, was that a movie? I never saw, I never saw any of the Indiana Jones movies. Pastor Brenton always, like, makes fun of me because I've never seen any of the Indiana Jones movies. But whatever. I have better things to do with my time. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant you had the, the jar of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. And manna was the flaky stuff that would fall from the sky when the children of Israel left Egypt and they were traveling to the Promised Land and they got hungry. And so God provided them with manna. And this flaky stuff would fall from the sky every morning and they would go and pick it up and then they would make bread out of it. This also represents Jesus. Everything represents Jesus. Because Jesus, he was the bread of life that came out of heaven. In the same way that the manna was the bread that sustained their lives that came out of heaven. And then also in the ark was Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff. Now this was the staff. It was, you know, just like a wooden stick. This was the staff that God used to show the people of Israel that Aaron was the one who was chosen to be priest. Just so that they understood. Like Aaron is the one I've chosen to be priest. And the priests were the ones who would offer up the sacrifices for the people. And this also represents Jesus, as he would become the great high priest who would offer up the greatest sacrifice for the entire world, which was himself. And then you also had the Ten Commandments inside of the Ark, which of course represent God's holiness, as well as our need for a savior since there's no way that any of us could follow God's law without breaking it. 
And so these things are all representative, all of these things that we went over, these are all representative of the first covenant, the old covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel. And when he set them free from their slavery in Egypt, this is what was given to them in order to make themselves acceptable to God. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And we'll see why. Let's continue reading in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 6 through 10. With these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. So verse 6 says that the priest would enter the first room, the holy place, repeatedly. That first room that had the bread, the light, and the incense. They would go in there all day. All day. In the Torah, we read about the priests that what they would do is they would tend to the lampstand regularly. They would fill the lampstand with oil. They would trim the wick so that the light would burn brightly and they would burn strong. And similarly, talking about representation, they would fill the lampstand with oil. The oil always represented the Holy Spirit. And so we need to tend to our lampstand daily. We need to fill our lampstand with oil daily. We need to be filled with the Spirit daily so that our light can burn bright. And every Sabbath day, another thing that they would do every Sabbath day, um, the priest had to replace the loaves. I mean, how many of you guys have ever bought a loaf of bread? And it starts to get moldy, right? So they had to replace the bread every week. Every Sabbath day, they would put new loaves of bread on the table, and then they would eat, you know, what they were going to throw away. Well, they were going to eat it. They weren't going to throw it away. And then every morning and evening, as I stated, incense uh, were to be burned to fill the tent with the fragrance and the smoke, representing the prayers of the people. So the priest would repeatedly enter the holy place, the first place for their priestly duties. But verse 7 in Hebrews 9, it says that in the second room, the most holy place, the holy of holies, would only be entered once a year. Once a year. Once a year. <laughs> Pray for me, you guys. They would only enter in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. How many of you guys know about the Day of Atonement? All right. Let's learn something. Okay. So on the Day of Atonement, this was a, this was a very special day. On this day, God gave the children of Israel very specific uh, instructions. Um, to uh, This is the way that, that they would atone for their sins. So on this day, the priest had to follow specific instructions or the priest would get struck down by God. Like God was going to kill him if he didn't follow these specific instructions. So on, on the morning of the Day of Atonement, the priest was to, you know, take a bath, get clean, and then he was to wear all linen, a linen undergarment, linen tunic, a linen sash, a linen turban. And then after he put on the specific clothes, the high priest was to sacrifice a young bull uh, as an offering 
for his own sins and for the sins of his household. So let's say I'm the high priest, and so I have to sacrifice a bull for my sins and also for the sins of my wife and for the sins of my son, which are many. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so after he would sacrifice the bull, he would collect the blood from the bull. And then he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies, and then he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would take some of the incense and burn it on the altar of incense. And after this, he would take two male goats from the children of Israel. The children of Israel, all the tribes would give him two male goats. And with one male goat, he would lay his hands on the head of the goat, and he would symbolically transfer the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat. And then after he prays and transfers and confesses all of the sins onto this goat, they would chase the goat out of the camp, chase it out into the wilderness, and the goat would take the sins of the people with it into the desolate land. That's where the term scapegoat comes from. You guys know scapegoat? That's it right there. And then with the other, the other goat, he would sacrifice it, collect the blood, and then take that blood into the Holy of Holies, and then he would sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And so he would do these things in order to atone for the sins of the people. And after that, he would bathe again, and then he would get dressed, and then he would take the fat from the animals that he sacrificed, he would take the fat, and then he would burn it. Burn it up because it would smell good. You guys ever burned fat before? Like you ever burned bacon? It smells delicious. So he would take the fat of those animals, he would burn it so that the aroma would go up to God, a pleasing aroma, and then he'd take the rest of the carcass and burn it outside of the camp. So it was pretty bloody. It was a pretty bloody thing. And this is what happened on the Day of Atonement. And this was the only time that anyone was allowed uh, to enter the most holy place or the holy of holies, the part of the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was behind the curtain. And the high priest had to do this every year. Year after year after year, the high priest had to do this. With each year that passed, these sacrifices and ceremony had to be completed exactly how God commanded in order to make atonement for sins every year. Now, atonement is defined as reparation for a wrong or an injury. So the wrong or the injury, as it relates to God, is the breaking of his law. That's the wrong, that's the wrong committed. That's the injury that was committed. Sin. And the reparation, or the way to make it up, make up for the sins committed, the way to make it up to God, the way to atone for the sin, were the sacrifices and the offerings that we just went over in the Day of Atonement. And this was all commanded by God. But why? Like, why? Why this? You know, I've heard the question asked, because it was so bloody, like, why does it have to be so bloody? Like, why does it have to include sacrifices? Why does it have to, why do we have to kill, why do they have to kill these animals? Why is it's so grotesque. Well, firstly, it was grotesque, it was horrific, it was bloody to show how disgusting and detestable sin really is in the sight of God. You know, God hates sin so much, it's the exact opposite of himself, and it's the prideful sin of man. It's, it's, it's abhorrent to him. He hates sin. I've heard, um, I've heard it said that our sins, I've heard our sins are highlighted like this, it's pretty interesting. I heard a preacher talk about our sins like this. He said, you know, God stands as creator of the universe. 
He spoke everything into existence. He put the stars in place. He named them. He created the planets. He commands them to spin around in a specific pattern, and they obey. He created the mountains, the trees, the animals. He commands the winds to blow a specific way, and they obey. He commands the animals to follow certain migrating patterns, and they obey. He commands the water cycle to behave a specific way, and it obeys. He commands the ocean to stop surging when it gets to the sand, and it obeys. Yet he looks at us, and he asks us to come. And we say, no. That's our sin. Everything in creation obeys God except for us. So all that blood, all that carnage was to show how gross sin is to God. Secondly, Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, they were created to live forever. They were made in the likeness of God. They weren't supposed to die. But when they disobeyed God and ate from the tree that God told them not to eat from, sin made its grand entrance. And then Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. So the introduction of sin brought on the introduction of death. Because as we just stated, the wages of sin is death. So death is the price that we pay for committing sin. Plain and simple. Sin, okay, now death. That's the price that you pay. So God eventually created the sacrificial system to provide the children of Israel, his chosen people, an avenue for them to be right with him so that they wouldn't have to die for their own sins. Death is the price that we pay for committing sin. The death that was supposed to be for them because of their own sins, was transferred to these animals. So the animals would take the sins of the people on their own bodies and die a substitutionary death for them. But verses 8 and 10 in Hebrews 9, it tells that the sacrifices, they did nothing to actually cleanse someone from sin. What does it say? It says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They couldn't actually cleanse someone from sin because they only dealt with the outward physical sins that people committed, eating the wrong food, not washing properly, wearing the wrong clothes, these sacrifices made up for these sins, but the sacrifices did absolutely nothing to cleanse a person's conscience and heart from being enslaved to sin. And neither did these sacrifices do anything to actually bring people closer to God. Their hearts were still far from him because of their sin. These sacrifices just kind of held back God's anger and judgment until a later time. It was still going to come. But let's see, let's see what sacrifice can do these things. What sacrifice can change a heart and bring you closer to God as we read verses 11 through 14. But the Messiah has appeared high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood 
having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So the ultimate high priest, that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah Savior, the Holy and Anointed One, came and conducted the duties of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Except he didn't enter the tent of meeting or the earthly tabernacle that was set up here on earth. He went directly into the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He went to the most holy place, into the literal presence of God. And he was able to enter that place not because of a bull or a goat being sacrificed and using their blood like the other high priests, he entered because of his own perfect sinless blood. Because not only did he act as a high priest, he was also the sacrifice for sins on behalf of the people, on behalf of the people, on behalf of you and I. The same way that the animals died on behalf of the children of Israel on the Day of Atonement, that's the same way that Jesus died on behalf of all who believe. However, unlike those animal sacrifices that were unable to cleanse the hearts of the Israelites, the death and blood of Jesus is able to cleanse both your conscience and your heart from all sin and make you perfect in the sight of God. He not only covers your sin so that God can't see it, he actually removes your sin by his blood. And because he was the perfect and spotless son of God, he only needed to sacrifice himself once and for all. He only needed to sacrifice himself once and for all. But let's continue reading verses 15 through 22. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because the death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in force while the one who made it is living. That is, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself in all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So because Jesus acted both as high priest and perfect sacrifice for sins, he is now the mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant. And those of us who are called, those of us who believe, are now promised the inheritance of God forever in heaven, where Jesus is preparing a place for us. And this is only because he did die to make atonement for the sins committed while under the old covenant. And by the old covenant, I mean the covenant of Moses the covenant that required all of those animal sacrifices and offerings. And now that covenant is done. That covenant is done. 
Hebrews 8.13, it says, By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old is aging and about to disappear. The old covenant is disappearing, or has disappeared. Now we have the new covenant. And just like the first covenant, that first contract, the old covenant, that first agreement that was ratified by the shedding of blood, so too was this new covenant ratified by the shedding of Jesus' blood. But let's continue reading about this shed blood as we conclude this whole idea so we can get into the purpose of Good Friday. Verses 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as, is it, appoint, just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So here is the reason that we recognize and commemorate Good Friday. In the Old Covenant, the high priest needs to make a sacrifice for himself first and then for God's people before he can enter God's presence, which wasn't God's actual presence, because the Ark of the Covenant only represented God's presence. But now in the New Covenant, Jesus, the great high priest, doesn't need to make a sacrifice for himself because he is God. However, what he did was take on sin upon himself and sacrificed himself on our behalf. And he went into God's actual presence, not just the representation of God's presence. In the Old Covenant, you got the high priest he needs to make this sacrifice over and over, year after year after year, so that the blood of the animals can continue to cover over the sins of himself and the people to appease God's wrath temporarily. But there's no internal change within the people. And now here in the New Covenant, Jesus sacrifices himself once and for all, never to offer himself up again, because he is the spotless lamb who not only covers sin, but he takes away the sins of the world. God's wrath is forever removed from those who take this on faith, and those who do are born again and are changed forever, given the Holy Spirit as a down payment. To break it down even further, just to make sure that we all walk away with an understanding of what Good Friday is all about, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned against God and broken his divine law. We are guilty. We are all guilty. And when we all die and stand before him, God will judge us based on our interaction with his law, which, as I've just stated, we've broken it. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy and desires that all come to the knowledge of the truth, sent his one and only son to be crucified on the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to suffer 
under God's wrath forever in hell. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This happened on the day that we recognize as Good Friday. This is what happened. And on this day, about 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, for 30 pieces of silver. Judas led a mob to Jesus and told him that he would kiss the one that they need to arrest. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. The, the thing that represents love and adoration was used ironically to condemn Jesus to death. And once they took Jesus away, his disciples scattered. They scattered. The same disciples who said that they would never desert him, who said that they would rather die before deserting him, deserted him. And it wasn't even hard. They just left. So Jesus gets taken to the, to the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and they bring lying witnesses to spread untrue statements about Jesus so that they could have a reason to condemn him to death. Eventually, it was Jesus' own words that they used to condemn him to die when he didn't deny being the Messiah, the Son of God, because he was. Wanting to put him to death because of that, but not having the actual power to do so, the Jewish religious leaders, they took Jesus to the Roman governor because the Roman governor actually had the power to condemn somebody to death. So they bring Jesus before the Roman governor. And out of fear, out of fear of the people, even though he knew Jesus was innocent of any kind of crime, he was pressured, the Roman governor was pressured into sentencing Jesus to death. But before he was to go to the cross, Jesus was flogged. Some of you may remember when we went over this, um, maybe about a month or two months ago, we talked about flogging. But for those of you who weren't here, I just want to read a quote that I read that night about flogging, what it meant to be flogged. This is the quote. The flogging process went with a Roman flagrum, a whip that had six leather cords that came out of it. And each one of those leather cords has leather balls at the end with shards of bone and metal dumbbells. And as a person was whipped, this whip was, was designed to cause, excuse me, I lost my spot. This whip was designed to cause extreme vasodilation of the skin. The metal dumbbells would bring blood vessels and pain receptors to the surface. And those shards of bone would then latch onto the skin and rip the skin off so that you would bleed more than you would have otherwise. And this whole process was, de was designed to be as painful and as torturous as possible. It was said that the arteries and veins were laid bare during the process of flogging, that people's intestines often fell out because their abdominal walls were ripped open. This was horrific and people often died during the flogging process. It was called the pre-death. And there's reason to believe that Jesus was flogged more than normal because Pilate wanted to make an example out of him and release him. And this process of flogging would often leave people devoid of skin as their skin would be falling off in ribbons. 
as they're carrying their cross, their skin is hanging off in tatters. They're naked and made to parade through a group of people to their crucifixion site. So this is what took place before Jesus was even crucified. This was before that. And so after the flogging, the Roman guards, they took some thorns and they twisted them into you know, a, a, a crown and then they shoved it down onto his head, most assuredly ripping his scalp and his forehead as they forced the crown down. And then, after this, now he goes to the cross. But it's not that simple. So Jesus, after being ripped apart by the flogging, the crown of thorns on his head, and he also took multiple you know, fists to the head by the temple guards and the Roman guards, he's probably concussed at this point, and now he's forced to carry the crossbar uphill to Golgotha. And so obviously, in the condition that he was in, he wasn't going to be able to carry that crossbar uphill. So they forced a man named Cyrene, uh, Simon from Cyrene to carry it for him. Once there, once they finally make it uphill to Golgotha, Jesus was to be nailed on the crossbar first. So they would nail the crossbar. I mean, they would put the crossbar down, and they would you know, put Jesus down on the ground. So his raw, open body on the dirt ground. And while he's on the ground, they drive the nails through his wrists first. They drive the nail through his wrists in between the radius and the ulna, in between these two bones, through his median nerve. There's a nerve here. And once it goes through there, you lose all sensation in your hands. You, you lose the power to control your fingers. And it's painful. And so they do this on both arms. Once he was secure on, on the crossbar, once they nailed him to the crossbar, then they would lift him up onto the vertical beam, they would lift him up onto the vertical beam that was already in the ground. And as this is happening, as they're putting him up onto the vertical beam, I mean, he's just, he's hanging there. You know, he's, he's hanging on the crossbar, which would probably cause his shoulders and elbow joints to dislocate. You know, because the weight of his body is just pulling him down as he's nailed in his wrists. And as he's hanging there, they would uh, drive a third nail through his feet more nerve damage, more pain, so that his knees would be, you know, slightly bent. Some sources say that the crossbar, you know, the crossbar, would be placed about 9 to 12 feet in the air. You know, they didn't have mechanical lifts back then, right? Like, they didn't have those, you know, you get on the lift and, you know, it goes up, because you always see the images of, of, of people on the cross, and it's, like, super high up. How are they going to get that high up? So, the vertical beam was usually placed, you know, probably about right here. So if you think about it, if it was placed right here, the crossbar, let's say, let's say this screen right here is where the crossbar was, Jesus' body would probably go to about right here. And I bring this up because as people are walking by, it's not like Jesus is far away. He's right there. His bloody body just hanging there crucified, right there. And I bring that up also because as he's hanging there, not far away from the people that are passing by, these people are mocking him. You saved others, why don't you save yourself? He could hear everything. And so as he, as he hangs there, breathing is extremely difficult. You can't exhale because the weight of your body isn't allowing the air to leave your lungs. You have to 
do that so that you can exhale. But he can't because he's weak. But there's a buildup of carbon dioxide and carbonic acid in your blood. It causes you to, to want to breathe. You know, as humans, we have like this natural desire to survive. So this stuff happens, it causes you to want to breathe, so he would have to push up to get a breath of air. But that would be extremely painful because he has nails in his feet. So we push up against the nails, painful, and then his raw open back, as he comes up, is scraping against the splintered wood. So taking a breath was extremely painful. And this happens every time that his body is compelling him to take a breath. At the same time, his heart is beating faster to try to circulate whatever oxygenated blood he has, which isn't much because he can't really breathe. And because he can't really breathe, there are capillaries that uh, begin to leak watery fluid uh, from the blood into his tissues, which causes a buildup of fluid around his heart and around his lungs. So his lungs are collapsing, his heart is failing, he's dehydrated, he can't get enough oxygen, and he's suffocating and dying. Now, some believe that Jesus could have died from what's called cardiac rupture, which is where your heart just explodes. So this is what happened to Jesus. But let's read uh, Matthew 27. Let's go to Matthew 27. And we're going to read verses 45 through 51. Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. So Jesus yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what does this mean? Why, why, why did God forsake him? Because of what it says in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 10. If you guys want to turn there, cool. If you don't, you could just listen. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 10. It says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and, yet, and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. The Lord was pleased to crush him because Jesus Christ had become the scapegoat. Remember that scapegoat we were talking about? 
Jesus Christ became the scapegoat. The sins of the entire world were transferred onto him, and God crushed him for it. But he did this so that we wouldn't have to be crushed for our own sins. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what has been made available to the whole world. Going back to Matthew 27, in verse 51, uh, it says, Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. Jesus destroyed the old covenant when he died on the cross. That, that curtain that was dividing the most holy place and the holy of holies was represented God's presence. That curtain was split in two. Jesus destroyed the old covenant, and now we have an open door into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And this path, this open door, this open door that leads to heaven because of Jesus, it's narrow. It's narrow, and not many will find it or choose to walk it. Not many will find it, and not many will choose to walk it. Now tonight, we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion as, as we remember what Christ did for us on that Friday before he eventually rose from the dead. But before we do that, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read uh, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus told us to do this. Jesus told us to take communion, to eat bread or a cracker, and to drink juice or wine, depending what denomination you're a part of. But Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him, to remember what he did for us, to proclaim his death by eating the bread and drinking the cup. We are announcing that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that he was crushed for our iniquity and not his own because he had none. And that we're proclaiming that because of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. And we were that joy. We were that joy. We were a part of that joy that laid before him. We were, that's, we were what was compelling him and moving him to die for our sins on the cross because he loved us so much. But let's continue. First Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself, or a woman. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we may not be condemned with the world. So, we need to make sure that we're taking communion in a worthy manner. Meaning, if there is anybody here who has unconfessed, hidden sin in your life, you need to repent right now. You need to repent right now and ask God to cleanse you of that unconfessed, hidden sin. You need to forsake that sin. You need to run away from that sin. You need to confess that sin to God, and you need to turn away from that sin. Get away from it. I'm not talking about you know, slipping up or messing up, like in the heat of the moment, you know, like my wife says something and I snap at her like, Arr. I'm not talking about that because we all have that. That's something that we're going to be dealing with and we need to work on until, you know, we go to heaven. <laughs> it's just something that's, that's in us. It's that indwelling sin. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a habitual, intentional lifestyle of sin that may have ensnared you as a believer. Are you caught up in sexual sin? Are you involved in fornication, pornography, adultery? Are you caught up in idolatry, forsaken Jesus to pursue your own desires? Are you stealing habitually and justifying it? Are you lying constantly and making excuses for it? Are you harboring bitterness in yourself. Is anybody here harboring bitterness, but you feel like you have good reasons for it, so therefore you're not dealing with it? Whatever the sin is, whatever it is, whatever that unconfessed, hidden sin is, you need to confess it to Jesus and be cleansed by the blood of the cross before you can take communion. Otherwise, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. God will judge you for it. That's what it says in the word. He may cause you to become ill or even die. That's what it says in the word. That's what it says. But it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. You can confess your sins, not to me. I don't want to hear it. Confess it to Jesus. He took it all. And the same goes for anyone who in here, uh, anyone in here who, who, I don't know everybody, but maybe somebody who isn't a believer in Jesus. If you aren't a believer in Jesus, in case there is someone in here who isn't a believer, communion isn't for you. It's not for you. When we take communion, we recognize what Jesus did for us. But if you don't believe in Jesus, then how can you possibly recognize what he did for you if you don't believe in it, right? But... You don't have to stay there. If God has been speaking to you, you've been feeling guilty about the sin in your life, then come to God. Come to God. And God, God, he can forgive you of that. He can cleanse you of that sin.
guys, I just, we're going to take communion, and it's, it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing, this thing that God did for us, that Jesus did for us. He, he bore our sins on his body on the cross. And if, seriously, if there's anybody in here who has anything that they're hiding, a, a lifestyle, a, a habitual sin, something that is in their lives, we need to, we need to repent of those things. We need to check our hearts and we need, to, we need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, okay? I'm saying this, like I'm not even, like I'm, I'm done with what's in here. Like I was supposed to say a bunch of other stuff, but you guys, Jesus died for our sins. He died for us. We have so many things in our lives that are just, just gross and disgusting. It's sin. But God is, he's so holy and he's so good and he's so loving that even in spite of all of the nastiness that we have inside of us, he still sent his son to die for us. In Romans 5, it says that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he came and he died for us. For what? So that we wouldn't have to die for our own sins. So that we wouldn't have to be punished forever in hell for our own sins because that's what our sins deserve. What amazing grace this is. What amazing grace this is. God sent his one and only son to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is something that we can be confident in. But if you're holding on to something, if there's something that you're holding on to, if there's a sin in your life that you know, like you know, you know, like I don't need to convince you, you know, just confess, confess again, not to me. Not to me. I can't handle that. I can't. Please don't confess your sins to me. I cannot handle that. I can't bear the weight of those things. But Jesus can. Jesus can. And he did. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. There's nothing else that you can add to it. He already took the punishment for, for all of our sins. Just confess. All right. So I just want to reiterate before we take communion that if, based on what I just said, we're going we're gonna to take communion in the foyer. If there's something that you're not ready to, to let go of, something that you're not ready to confess to God and, and be cleansed of, then don't take communion. And no one's going to judge you for it if, if you don't, okay? I'm just telling you, like, no one, no one better judge anybody if they, if they choose not to take communion. But we're going to take communion out there. I urge you, though, if there is something, just let it go. Just let it go. It's like, it's like you're holding on to cancer, and the doctor's like, I have this treatment. Like, it's, it's really quick. It's really easy. All you have to do is, you know, 
take this pill? No, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll keep it. Like, that doesn't make sense. This, the sin is killing you. The sin will kill you. Separate you forever from God. 